Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On this week's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Koek, is talking with Marg Moscow. Marg lives north of Sydney on the east coast of Australia. She has a particular interest in the theology and social context of the Apostolic Church, especially as it relates to women. Marg has a Bachelor of Theology from the Australian College of Ministries and a Master of Arts with a specialization in early Christian and Jewish studies from Macquarie University. She blogs at margmosco.com. Hi, Margaret. Thank you so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. Helen, it's great to be here. Well, thank you so much for making the time. And the time is kind of fun. You're 15 hours ahead of us here in Chicago. So I feel like I'm talking to the future, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Are we on the same day? I'm not even sure we're, we're going to be the same day. You know, it's Friday morning. Okay. So, and is it fr- still, it's Friday still Friday for you? Too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, it's it's just so much fun. I have really enjoyed and loved and learned from your blog and you've got a great website. It's just so much material there. And we'll make sure that um, in our notes that we point our listeners to that. But I wanted to start more at the beginning with you. You were raised in the church, in the Christian Reformed Church, yeah. and it has um, Dutch roots. And so at age 10, you talk about how you decided to become a believer. You were passionate to serve Jesus. But what did you think that look like? What did it mean to follow after Jesus, to serve Jesus? How did women in your church and in your denomination, how did they show their passion for Jesus? Yeah, so that was something I really struggled with. I got saved at a camp and I was introduced to a kind of Christianity that I didn't even see in my own church. And it was a real turning point and it was a powerful moment. It was a very decisive, very powerful moment. And then coming back to my church and from the moment I made that decision till now, like almost 50 years later or more than 50 years later, I've just wanted to do nothing else really except really serve God and and understand him better. And I really didn't know how to do that or what that would look like as a girl because in my church we never saw women leading or teaching or ministering in a prominent way. They were in the kitchen. We heard about missionary women overseas. And I don't even recall hearing a female missionary talk. I have this vague memory, but I'm just not even sure if it's a real one, but because it was a long time ago, we had a woman play the organ, but all the elders were men and we had lots of elders because it was quite a big church. All the people who spoke were men, all the people who made decisions were men. I had this burning desire to to serve God. And uh, so that was really tricky for me because the only role models I had were pastors' wives. That's really good because I think that also was a bit true for me at times, which of course puts you in a conundrum because you got to land a pastor, right? (laughs) You got to marry a pastor to, to fulfill your calling, so to speak. But you do talk about your views on and your understanding of marriage. You do that a lot mm. in your vlogs. You've written articles on that. I've had fun looking looking at those. You kind of had your own 
moments in your marriage that maybe tested or changed your views? I mean, Ooh. we can talk about how that how that happened, but there's one story yeah. that involves an axe. Yes. <laughs> like an axe. And I thought, well, you know what? Why don't we start there? Okay. What, <laughs> tell us about that story, yeah. marriage and an axe. So that was right at the very beginning of my marriage. So Pete and I married quite young in our early 20s. And, and the only example I had of marriage was the husband being the leader. And, you know, I've always been a very conscientious person and kind of a keen person. And I really wanted to be the best Christian wife. And, and I thought that meant being really submissive to my husband. And I read all these marriage books. I don't know. Do you know the books by Maribel Morgan? Total Women no, and Total Gen- Oh, they're those. terrible. Really okay. Terrible. <laughs> okay, I don't need to read them. Right. And But these were the books that, that we were reading in the 80s. And so, you know, I went into this marriage thinking I'm going to be, you know, I'm just going to support Pete. I'm going to serve Pete. I'm going to surrender Pete. I'm going to let him do all the decision-making and I'm going to just be the best submissive wife and that's going to really please God. So, well, I felt the same as before you get into yeah. that act story here, but I, I felt the same, actually. Mm-hmm. I think we might have, if not read the same books, the same sort of books. And and I do remember about six months into the marriage when I yet again said, sure, whatever you want. And people who know me, Serene can verify, I do actually have opinions. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I, you know, certainly voice to those opinions as we were dating. And then it was like a light switch, you know, was flipped and we're, I'm married. And now it's like, yeah, whatever you want, whatever you want. And about six months in, my husband, Jim said, you know, I didn't marry you so I could leave. I married you so we could do life together. And it was a real wake up moment for me, but please continue. Yeah. But we got to get to the act. So (laughs) literally our wedding day, and we said our vows, and I'm pretty sure there was something in my vows about going where my husband led, you know, something along those lines. Yeah. And we're at the reception, and um, our master of ceremonies was our youth pastor. And again, we were all very young, and he had brought an axe to the reception, wrapped in toilet paper like the hand, and it wasn't even a new axe. It was a used axe that he'd probably got out of his dad's shed or something, wrapped it in toilet paper, and he thought it would be a great joke if Pete and I cut our wedding cake with an axe. And I was bored. <laughs> Makes no sense. Um, and especially because I couldn't even contemplate it because our wedding cake had been a gift that a woman in the church had made for us. And I love this cake because it was just her. Like it wasn't perfect. Do you know what I mean? It was just homemade but clever. And anyway, there was just no way that this was going to happen. But I had just promised to do what my husband said and I had in my heart vowed to be the submissive wife and we've been married less than two or three hours and I'm putting my foot down and I'm doing it ever so gently. Like this is such a dilemma. How do I say no? You know, this was like it's hilarious but at the time it was such a dilemma for me and it wasn't hard to dissuade Pete because it was a really stupid idea. So, you know, it wasn't hard, but it really, yeah, it affected me a lot that within two or three hours I had said, no, sorry, we can't do this. Yeah. 
So in a sense, both you and I just really probably weren't understanding what submission mm. meant. Yeah. Right. And as you've thought more, you've been married now for a while and you've written about it, you've studied it in scripture. What do you wish you had known, you know, on that <laughs> wedding day that you know now about the word submission? Yeah, okay. I could just talk about this for such a long time. I'm trying to think, how do I condense that really quickly? I think I'd want to know why Paul said those words for starters, why he said it to the Ephesians. And he says it quite circumspectly. I think, to, to the wives in Ephesus and why he says it again in Colossians. And I think there's quite a large semantic range in the word submission. It's rarely used in the context of marriage in pagan literature, which is something I'm just going into now. I mean, I've been studying this word for so long and now I'm looking and I'm going, wow, it really, so I'm, there's one instance, and I just can't off the top of my head think what the source is. If I think hard enough, I'll remember. I think it's the wife of Philip. That's but, right. Yep. yep. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Who's the dad yes. of Alexander the Great. And she's got her nose out of joint for a very good reason. And then is it someone who says, well, like he basically just says, just acquiesce for the sake of the relationship. And that's, that's right. It's it very mild. It's all it that's and there's another one, if I really think hard, because I wasn't. It's Plutarch. I mean, it's Plutarch, I think, is the other okay. one in his advice to the bride and groom. Oh. And it also is somewhat of a throwaway. I mean, yeah. most all of the places, they really do emphasize obey. Like right. that's the approach, not yeah. submit. I actually yeah. studied mm -hmm. advice to the bride and groom for my master's. Mm -hmm. And like, so Plutarch, who was a pretty nice guy compared to first century men he says some really nice things because the people he's writing to are his well not his friends because they're younger than him but there's people he knows personally he cares about and he still tempers what he says but it's still pretty much the guy's the leader and he uses words I mean I don't know you know kratain, you know so the man which is quite, almost a forceful word in some ways but the man's the decision maker and you know, all these words that you just don't find in the New Testament or in Paul, I often say that the only time that it mentions a husband ruling his wife is in Genesis 3.16, which is about the fall. You know, this is, well, this is not yes. the ideal situation. Yeah. No. And in fact, just the other day, I was reading the beginning of the book of Esther. And there we have another example of a husband mm. trying to rule his wife, but it's the king who is trying to show off his um, attractive wife, Vashti, and good for her. Yeah. She says, no, I'm not going to parade in front of your male guests as some girl roaring know, drunk. The right word. Yeah. yeah. Floozy. I don't know. I mean, I'm not that. I have dignity and you're treating me with disrespect. I'm not going to do it. But he sets, he and his advisor mm. say, well, we can't have this. We have to have women who obey their husbands. Yeah. So it is in the Bible. It's just yeah. not by a godly man. Yeah, and in that is. verse, which I think is like Esther 120 or Esther 121, it's about men ruling their household. But I mean, Esther is written almost, you know, making fun of Xerxes and making fun of these powerful people. And it's well, these powerful men getting in a dither because this woman isn't doing what she wants. And so, you know, we're not going to take our cues for living from the fall or from Xerxes, who's a pagan exactly. king. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. 
Well, as you have looked not only at marriage, you also talk about, you had a, I'm going to call it a masculine pronoun Ooh. moment. Yeah. <laughs> I've had one of those as well in the early 1980s as I was in my PhD program and I was, I rode a train in the morning to get to classes and I was, you know, good evangelical disciple reading my Bible in the morning. And I think I was in first Corinthians, but the masculine pronoun he yeah. for describing oh, over and over again, he, the next verse, he in describing a disciple. And I have to say, I just, I got tears in my eyes and I just prayed to God. Am I here? Am I yeah. anywhere in scripture? And you talk about maybe a similar experience, but in this case, it was in Romans 12, yeah. that section of Romans that talks about the charismata, the spiritual gifts. Can you talk a little bit about that yeah. experience? Yeah. So I was really, I felt God was encouraging me to step more into a leadership role, which is something that I'd said no to all along. And I think I don't know how old I was, but I think I might have been about 45 at this stage. And But I just really felt like God was encouraging me. And this was, again, another dilemma for me. And I would talk to God about it. The same as when I was a little girl, like, how do I serve you, God? I don't want to be a pastor's wife. I don't want to be a missionary. How do I serve you? Like, I've had these conversations. And again, <laughs> So any odd years later, I'm having this same conversation. I don't really think I should be a leader because of what I understood the Bible to say. And by this time, I had just started studying Greek because I've always loved the Bible. And as soon as I knew that the New Testament was written in Greek, I'd made the decision that at some point I was going to learn Greek. And I'm still learning Greek. I'm still, you know, reading inscriptions, reading papyri, reading literature, just anything I can to broaden my grasp of um, the language. Anyway, so one night, you know, I was praying, I was talking to God and I was up to Romans 12, just part of my regular reading. And so <laughs> I read this. It says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us so far, so good. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And I just remember saying, see God, I can't be a leader. It's let him govern diligently. And then I had thought, well, let me just check that out in the Greek. And I got my Greek New Testament and there's no word for man in verse six, but there's no word for man in any of this passage. There, there are no masculine pronouns. So there are masculine participles, but the masculine grammatical gender is the default grammatical gender. And I often say that this passage is just as gender inclusive as John 3.16 because we have the same masculine article, masculine participle. And in John 3, 16, we've even got a masculine adjective. Like, so whoever believes, or it's all trans translated a bit more literally from the Greek, but it's all who are believing. But that, no one tries to say, well, that's only men. Exactly. Yeah. So basic, and so I looked at, and I wept. 
because I realised all I could rely on was this English translation. And, like, like, most English translations are great and I'd lived my whole Christian life for 30-odd years. I had been blessed tremendously by the Bible. I still love the Bible. But, yeah, I realised in this list of gifts and in all of Paul's lists of gifts, so in Ephesians 4.11, there's one in 1 Corinthians 12. And when he's just speaking about participation in ministry in Colossians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 14.26, where it mentions teaching and contributing in other spoken ministries, there's just nothing in there that hints in any way that Paul is preferring men in some way. It goes for every spiritual well, and- gift. List. Yeah, that's right. And we find a similar situation in Timothy as well, that the reality is Greek, like English, if there is a man as part of the group, then the language itself kind of defaults yeah. to male, the male ending of things. And so that that doesn't mean there aren't women present. Yeah. It's just that's how the Greek did things. So if there are only women in a group, then you will have the feminine. But if there's one man and a group of women, then you'll have the masculine. And that's, I think, why for the longest time also women just had to do a translation in their head, all these masculine pronouns, and we had to somehow fit ourselves in there. And then sometimes we were excluded. Yeah, Like you say, both of us felt that way. We were excluded, but that's not what the biblical text says. Well, you did a lot of work in your Greek and you got your master's degree from Macquarie University. You did work on deacons. You especially looked at Phoebe, which is also in Romans, Romans 16. Can you talk to us just a little bit about what drew you to this topic and then what you did? Do you know the very first word I ever looked up in a Greek dictionary was diakonos, which is the abstract noun. And I think, again, because of my own personal dilemma in how do I serve God, I wanted to know in my English Bible, was there a difference between the word service and ministry? But it's the same Greek word that almost all the times it's the same Greek word, diakonia, underneath that. And I honestly don't remember exactly what made me do this particular sub- subject on deacons and Phoebe, but I guess it was just a natural progression, yeah. And I'm really glad I did because diakonos is one of Paul's favorite words for a minister, and it really is his word. So no other New Testament author. So diakonos occurs a few times in the Gospels where it really does mean servant. But once we get into Acts and the letters where the church is in existence, Paul's the only person who uses that word for a minister, and he uses it quite a few times. He uses it for himself, for Timothy, for Tychicus. I won't say anymore in case I get it wrong, but he uses it for a few men and he uses it for Phoebe. And and I really believe that the sense that he uses it is an agent with a sacred commission. And I'm relying on the research, the extensive research of John Collins, who's an Australian scholar here. And you can see how Paul uses it because often he'll add the word like God or Jesus, the diakonos of Jesus. And with Phoebe, she's the diakonos of the church in Kintria, however you pronounce that word. So, and a church is a sacred community. And so the only, and I won't go into 
to the exceptions because they're not really exceptions. The exceptions prove the rule, like the false apostles who are agents with a diabolic commission. And even the the servants or the ministers in, is it Romans 13, the government officials, the magistrates, mm. he calls them a diaconos of God. So he's really consistent with how he uses it. They're agents with a sacred commission. And, uh, and Phoebe is one of them. And yeah, there's not a lot of evidence in the, in the second century for women deacons, which I was disappointed on. And that's mainly because the church was an illegal institution then. So it's only once we hit a week. Yeah. It's yeah. only in later centuries where people were inscribing things in stone and in mosaics that we see more evidence for female deacons. And then there's plenty. Oh, there are yeah, absolutely. Plenty. Yes. And I mean, second century. We don't have much, yeah. <laughs> as you said, right? Yeah, yeah it's a struggling But there small were still community. women ministering. So here's another thing, if I can just quickly get that in. So we know like in the church in Smyrna, there were women like Alki and Garbia, obviously ministering. Like Ignatius just says wonderful things about Alki, but he doesn't give them ministry titles. And so the thing I love about Paul is he's not afraid to give women the same ministry descriptions or the same ministry terms. I don't know if you can really call them titles in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but he uses the same words for the women as he does for the male ministers. And that's, so his favourite is co-worker, then diakonos, which is sometimes translated as deacon. Often he just calls them brother or sister. Then the next one in order of the amount of time he uses it is apostolos and then he uses labor and laboring language and he uses all those words for men and women like yeah amazing it really is and phoebe is such an interesting character i mean she's described not just as a deacon but he describes her in other ways yeah. do you want to talk a little bit more about sure phoebe? yeah so yeah he calls her our sister so again paul he never uses words that have sort of connotations of power and prestige. He likes to use words that have the sense of collegiality, like co-worker and sister, our sister. And although prostatus, I guess, is the other word that he uses, and that does have connotations of power and prestige because a prostatus in that first century, a patron did have status, did have wealth, and if you had wealth, you had clout. And she was a patron of many, he says, and of Paul himself. I think, and when we think of translations, that just reminded mm. me, some translations will call her a helper. Yeah. She's yeah. a helper of many. And that, to your point, Paul does expect all those with responsibility, leadership responsibilities to help, to be help helpers, yeah. but it waters down the responsibility level that she has. Yeah. She is a patron. Yeah. The whole of first century society, Roman society, was structured around this patron-client relationship, which is, you know, unless you looked at it, you can just gloss over this world and not realise what's going on. But so many people depended on patrons for their safety, for their livelihood, for all kinds of things. I mean, it was such a hierarchical pecking order of people being dependent on one another in the fourth century. So Phoebe was a woman with considerable clout and influence and 
A patron of many, yeah. Some people argue that she carried the letter to the Romans and read the letter and interpreted the letter. Do you think that um, also? I'm a bit more guarded about that because I read like views on both sides. And so Peter Head, for instance, who's always been really into letter writers of that, he said, I think almost everyone agrees that she took the letter to Rome. I think that when you look at the way Paul introduces her to the Romans, it's got to be what's happening. So I think, yep, so she brought the letter to Rome. She would have passed on personal messages from Paul. She probably would have explained things. Whether she actually read it aloud, I'm not sure. It's likely, but she definitely would have been there speaking in meetings. Um, People asking her all kinds of questions about Paul and his ministry and, yeah. Yeah, I think that it just helps to put a little bit of background into their relationship to recognize the general practices of the day. So she was a trusted co-worker, she must even though Paul doesn't use that so word. So trusted, mm-hmm. yeah. And I yeah. can't quite draw the quote out of my head, but there's something that Clement says in First Clement about trusted letter writers and other people because... You know, writing letter was so expensive. I think I read the other day that the letter to the Romans would have been valued at about $2,000, you know, because each... Yeah, I've seen that yeah, as well. Expensive. Mm-hmm. There probably was another copy made because of the way that they did, because it was, he didn't just scroll something down. There was a whole procedure, a very expensive procedure in writing this letter. And it was a very long letter by normal standards. So there was a lot of trust placed in Phoebe, without a doubt. Yeah, that that is so, so true. Now, here's a hard question, an unfair question. Who is your favorite woman of the New Testament? Testament. And if you can't answer that. I can. Yes, I can. can. Okay, good. Lydia. Oh, yes. Tell us about Lydia. Uh, Look, so Lydia in the New Testament and Rahab in the Old Testament, because I just feel that God just said, I pick you. And he just gave them this deposit of faith. And I'm being very close with him. Sometimes I feel like God just did that to me. And like, he just, you know, these are probably just really ordinary women. Like when Rahab sees what's going on and the rest of her town is freaking out and she's going, no, I'm going to side with these guys. I'm going to help these guys, you know, commit treason against her own people and she ends up being part of their community and with Lydia I think we can gloss over the fact how afraid she was I mean Paul and Silas had been in prison was it Silas Paul was in prison I can't I should remember this but Silas you're right you're right yep and the, the Philippians say get out of this town but they go to her house you know that's so that's kind of brave And even, you know, like the Romans were pretty superstitious. They didn't like new religious ideas, especially Eastern religious ideas. So even just hosting the church in her house in the first place, as well as after they were released from prison, but there was this faith that Rahab and Lydia had. And I just identify with this faith that just, for some reason, you just can't shake it. It's just there. It's just a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had talked about the responsibilities that women have had, some of the things that they have done. And 
I know that you've talked about masculine and feminine also as categories. We talk about male and female as we have, but also masculine and feminine. And as it relates to the category of leadership or discipleship. Yeah. How do you best think about these categories of masculine and feminine? You know, why they're important. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like very generally speaking, really broad brush strokes, brush strokes. I think men and women do lead differently. Um, So men can tend to lead in a more masculine way and women tend to lead in a more feminine way. And we need both. We need both in our homes. We need ideally in our homes. We need both in the church. And you know, it's really hard to sort of really describe what that is. But I think women tend to be more relational, more intuitive, kinder, a whole bunch of things. But I think our society really values more and more these days than they did in the past perhaps when perhaps life was more of a struggle I don't know but we need both and I think Paul recognized that we need both and so is it oh well Thessalonians 2 when he's appealing to the Thessalonians and he's saying that he and his apostolic colleagues were gentle like nursing mothers like breastfeeding women he's you know he's yeah and so he describes himself as a breastfeeding woman and then as a father. So he recognized that we need both. And even Moses is complaining to God one day because Moses is, am I supposed to be, you know, leading these people like a breastfeeding woman? And the implication is, yes, you are. <laughs> That's what, you know. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so often I think women feel, well, I'm masculine if I'm leading, but that's just not the case. There, You can lead from yourself. Yeah. And every society picks things that are masculine and feminine. I think when I lived in Kenya, I discovered that I never really thought of this before, but I discovered that the Kenyans don't map masculine and feminine with colors. Blue and pink are how we Ooh. identify babies as boys and girls. But they it just they could easily wrap a baby boy in pink and they weren't saying anything by that other than I'm keeping my baby warm with a blanket, yeah. you know? And I use that as kind of a it's a silly or sort of superficial example of, but I think it proves the point that each culture tries to express masculine and feminine because it's connected with how God created us, male and female. But each culture does that in different ways. And leadership shouldn't be just the privilege of one or the other. It takes both in the culture, however they're talking about masculine and feminine, both of those qualities are qualities that we should see in leaders. Yeah. Yeah. It really is hard to say, you know, unless you're talking about overt traits like aggression or something, you know, what is masculine and what is feminine, but we really need both. Yeah. I was thinking back as we're coming to a close of our conversation, I want to go back to you as a 10-year-old girl yeah. dedicating your life to Jesus. And back then, you know, it 
seemed like a pretty narrow tunnel of you needing to walk through. But what would you say today to 10-year-old girls who want to dedicate their lives to Jesus? And what would you say to 10-year-old boys who are going to be serving alongside yeah, them? That's a really difficult question. I think, first of all, I'd like to say to the parents and teachers, don't underestimate mm. the faith of kids. And I think rather than telling girls and boys, I think we should be showing them because words without the demonstration aren't going to mean, mean much. They need to be seeing men and women, you know, sharing things together, respecting each other, appreciating what, you know, what all the individuals bring. So I think, I hope that the 10-year-olds today have lots of healthy role models. And then we can point to role models in the Bible, like Deborah and Barak, who work together, you know, yeah, Deborah is guiding Barak and goes into the battlefield, but you know, he's also doing his stuff. He's also a hero of faith. And then Priscilla and Aquila, because teamwork, men and women working together, yeah, showing them even more than telling 10-year-olds, yeah. Oh, well, that's, I love that answer. That is so good. Thank you so much, Margaret, for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Tonight in your time frame on the Alabaster Jar, just such a treat. And I highly recommend your website with your blog. I, I refer to it often. Even this summer, I needed something real quick when I was teaching and your resources were so great. And you have a lot of fans, including my colleagues, Jay Gupta and Scott McKnight here at Northern Seminary who just love your work. So thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, on the Alabaster Jar. That's my pleasure. It's been great. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed our conversation with Marg Mosco, check out today's episode description for several links to post from her blog that are relevant to today's conversation. You can follow her work at margmosco.com and be sure to join us back here next week for another brand new episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. Oh,